Listen up. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the podcast participants and not to any participants, employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. You know, for fun. So lighten up and enjoy. Oh, stomping Jen. Are we light? Are we enjoying? We're gonna I'm not enjoy. sure I'm enjoying. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna be fine. Yeah. We have been beset by a series of technical difficulties. Yes. So it is a miracle, a some kind of miracle that we're able to sit here and talk. Yes. For this episode. Well, I'm excited. I am too. I've been looking forward to this all day. I feel like I have waded through a jungle of um, adversity to get to be able to talk to this um, lovely human being this evening. <laughs> We're going to be talking to Kelsey Hall. Um, she is an accessibility um, professional, an academic, a leader in her community. We're going to talk to her about all of these things. I'm excited. Are you? Yes. And she's, okay. a, she's a terrific human being. Yes. I already said that. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. But right. it, 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 is, it is worth repeating. <laughs> all right. Okay. Are Let's you ready? Let's get to it. Yes. Let's get to it. Soft Serve Podcast. Creamy, delicious ideas without the creepy truck. Oh, Stomping Jen. I think you invited the creepy truck here today. I did invite the creepy truck today. All right. Yeah, we don't want any creepy trucks. Get out of here, you. All right, but who we do not want to get out of here is our guest. Right. Kelsey Hall. Let's say hi to Kelsey. Hi, Kelsey. Hello. Hello, hello. <laughs> thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming on and persevering through all of the aforementioned technical <laughs> di- um, difficulties. Yes, you're quite a trooper. Yeah. I am thrilled <laughs> to be speaking to you, mostly because I know a little bit about some of the work that you do in this area um, that we call accessibility. Um, but before we begin talking about accessibility, I just wanted to give you a little chance to tell us more um, about yourself. Anything um, you want to add? Sure. Um, let's see. I am a Massachusetts native and um I feel like, especially just given the times we're in right now, I haven't spent a lot of time in the last three or four years really thinking about a whole lot outside of, you know, accessibility and disability. So this whole quarantine has given me a lot of time to focus on creativity, which has been really great. So um, I've been doing a lot of different art and, um, you know, hiking a lot. That was you know, a really big thing we got into this year. So when I'm not 
focus on disability and accessibility, I'm probably painting or hiking. (laughs) So yeah, that's kind of a little bit about me otherwise, but I'm sure we'll find out more. Yeah, absolutely. And again, thanks for being with us to have this conversation, which I think is a really important one. Mm -hmm. And for the people Mm -hmm. listening to this who are asking the question, uh, what is accessibility? Could you just answer that? Yeah, um, I I think the most common thing people are used to kind of engaging with are curb cuts. So the areas of a sidewalk, for example, where um, there's a little bit drop uh, drop in the sidewalk that where it meets the road, um, that's a form of accessibility for people who are wheelchair users, but also for people who are on bicycles and all sorts of things. So. Um, accessibility really creates an environment where people with disabilities are able to belong and exist and thrive just in the same way that people or same access different way that people uh, without disabilities do and can. And when we think about accessibility, you gave an example. So the, the curb cut, the sidewalk curb cut, Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be something physical like that in the um, what I would call the material world. There, there is this idea about digital accessibility, right? And other, I think, forms yeah. of accessibility. Could you talk just a little bit more about those things? Yeah, absolutely. So the physical world is usually the one, you know, the the realm that people just generally are most familiar with because it's kind of like in your face and obvious. Um, the digital world is where I mostly spend my time and accessibility. And that has to do with, um, so there are digital curb cuts as well. So ways that people with different types of disabilities uh, engage with digital spaces, whether it's a mobile app, whether it's a phone, like hardware versus software, a website. Um, and that kind of spans into not just like, the actual product itself, but the whole process of creating a product. Um, So design, there's um, inclusive and accessible design. um, And there are also, uh, outside of just the digital world, um, there's even things around accessibility like um, economic accessibility. So, um, you know, not everyone is able to afford everything that comes their way. So there's the idea of in this kind of realm, thinking about accessibility from an economic standpoint as well, because it also carries over into things like digital, which maybe we'll talk about at some point. But um, so there's a lot of different ways that accessibility kind of comes about. But I do also want to clarify, a lot of people confuse the word accessibility with availability. So this is very much different in a lot of ways. So I'll throw that out there too. Thanks. Um, and you mentioned yeah. disability um, a couple of times mm-hmm. as we were talking about that. In, in, your, in your line of work, could you frame what we mean when we're talking about disability? I think in a lot of people's minds, disability, again, is something that they can easily identify and look at and see and and see and say there that person has a disability and and I know from you know my limited work in this area that's not necessarily true mm. so I'm wondering if you could yeah. talk a little bit about the idea of disability yeah absolutely so 
disability, I, when I tend to talk about it and start introducing it to people, I always caveat the idea of disability with once you've met one person with a disability, you've met one person with a disability. So anything I say after that <laughs> mm-hmm. means that it is not clear cut. There's so much gray and variability, um, just like there is among any person or any group of people. So um, the easiest way that I find to kind of talk about it when considering different types of disabilities that people may experience is to break it into a few categories. Um, and those categories are vision. So someone who has a sight disability, maybe they're blind, maybe they're colorblind, peripheral vision, um, maybe, um, you know, uh, they have tunnel vision. It could be any type of vision-based disability. Hearing is another area. So someone who's deaf, uh, hard of hearing, someone with significant tinnitus or an auditory processing disorder, anything to do with the ears um, and, and or the ear-brain connection. Um, the next would be physical. So there's that's a wide array of different types of disabilities from someone who may use prosthetics to someone who may use a wheelchair um, to someone who may have paralysis. So that's kind of a spectrum. Um, cognitive, which is also really vast. Um, that really just means brain-based. So it could be someone who has uh, an intellectual disability or describing someone who has um, something more like a learning disability, like dyscalculia, so difficulty with math and numbers, or dyslexia, which is more reading, writing. Um, And let's see, what do I have left? Uh, Speech, that's another one as well. So someone may have no verbal ability to speak. uh, or it could be someone who maybe has a stutter. There's lots of different types of, or um, something that we call um, uh, dyspraxia. So that's a neurological condition with speech. So there's so many different types of disability. Mm-hmm. I think I hit them all. Let's see. Vision, hearing, cognitive. Physical. And physical speech. And speech. That's five. Yeah. So <laughs> I tend to break it down into those categories. And then, of course, anyone can have any combination of disability as well. So um, you might have, you know, a disability type from all of those categories, but that's of course a very medical way to look at disability, Mm -hmm. but it tends to be um, a a way that helps people understand how broad disability can be and the kind of like different areas that it exists in. And to your point too, you had mentioned, you know, it's something that people think they can see all the time, but really 80% of disabilities are invisible. Well, wow. so that adds an interesting layer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's really, and thank you. Thank you for that explanation. And, and I think that was the, yeah. that was the point I kind of wanted to try to tease out of that question was I, I knew that, mm. that, you know, like I knew the vast majority of um, disabilities can't be seen with the eye. Um, so I'm going to ask a really obvious question here. Why should we, <laughs> yeah. sorry, why should we all care about accessibility? Why is this something you have spent a lot, a, a large part of your life working in? Uh, I wish that it was something that would seem kind of silly to ask, but man, I spend so much of that time working in this world, convincing people they should care about this, that um, to someone empathic, like the two of you, uh, it might seem like a no brainer, but too much of the world, unfortunately, we're in a very different place when it comes to disability. So. Um, It's also really unfortunate that people seemingly have to experience a lot of things to get them to care about it. Um, 
because I think that presents a really unique issue in this line of work. Um, ironically, about 25% of the population has a disability of some kind, but because of the stigma around disability and the rampant ableism that exists in our society, um, people are unwilling a lot to recognize what disability is even in themselves and to talk about it and to feel comfortable talking about it. So um, it's not an easy question to answer in that um, that's really what I spend a lot of time helping people understand is why it's important. And also just, um, you know, like how to figure out that why for themselves, if it's not something that is directly impacting them, but all that aside, <laughs> we should care about it because it's the world's largest underrepresented group. And the only one that anyone can become a part of at any time. So even if it's from a place of pure selfishness, you should care about it because it's very likely that at any moment, at any point in time in your lifetime, actually it's highly probable you will experience one or multiple disabilities. And so the world just right now isn't built for you most likely. Um, so you should probably be investing in your future or your current existence that you're unwilling to admit you exist in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's such a good point. And that was a, profound um, realization to me when somebody framed the the pending kind of um, um, Mm -hmm. disability that's waiting for me at some unknown time right like in addition to the to the ones I already have I think I've talked before Mm -hmm. on this podcast that um, I suffer from intractable migraine right mm-hmm. which is a which is a i don't know if we would put that in the cognitive um bucket but you know like at some point in my early 20s i don't remember i started experiencing these mm-hmm. kind of random unpredictable life disrupting um neurological events that you know had an impact on my work on mm-hmm. my family life on my social life and um you know, having that happen to me out of the blue was, it's not something I ever expected. And I've been kind of dealing with mm-hmm. now for, you know, 25 years or so. But mm-hmm. I, I just, but that whole thinking about disability in that way, it's just, you know, I think is really important thing for people to do. Like, you know, you may be walking around in this world right now um, in your own mind, okay, but tomorrow anything could be waiting for any of us i guess mm-hmm. um absolutely yeah now how did you how did you get involved in accessibility work what drew you into this yeah um and that's like that's something i think about a lot um it's like what drew me in and what keeps me here <laughs> um i you know i think about this because many 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 years ago so like 30, 30 years ago, I was in preschool <laughs> and my mom ran um, an after school program for uh, kind of like the preschool, kindergarten, and through I think it was like eighth grade where I was and where my brother was. And um, as part of that program, um, she had a person who was deaf come in and teach American Sign Language. Um, and I took that class and I continue to take that class. Um, and classes like that 
forever. I, I literally took it and had some time on and off. And so I started kind of getting into this world unknowingly. Um, and it kind of just took me in a lot of different directions. Um, and it has continued to over, over time. So I met so many different people in the deaf community from when I was young to when I was like a teenager to then as an adult. And, um, uh, within that, that also kind of broadened the world of disability as a whole for me. And I started meeting more people and then realizing, well, um, you know, I have family members who have disabilities and this is where the like, sociocultural side of this is so fascinating to me is like I didn't recognize disability in my family as what it is and the way that it is until much later because it's like almost like it's ingrained ableism right but it's also just no one wanting to talk about it which is also you know ingrained ableism so um you know, I, I started realizing all of these things, finding out about all, all of these things and talking about them more and going through various education. And um, it's just kind of my educational path, my personal path. Just so many different places have taken me just within the world of disability. And I'm so grateful in so many ways because I have learned so much from people all over the world in totally different um you know, cultures and societies about disability, how they view it, how they view themselves, how the medical systems versus societies um, systems kind of view disability and what's good and what's not so good about that. And it's fascinating. Um, and I have my own disabilities that have kept me here. Um, and it's, it's a world that is like simultaneously the most humane um, and the most intersectional and the most oppressed in many ways because of that intersectionality. Hmm. You mentioned other countries that grapple with this. Are there places that are in the world that are doing it right in your mind or better than, <sighs> better, better than, better than we are? It's tricky. I would say yes. In some ways, um, I wouldn't say like there's any one particular country that um, it, uh, this is a tricky one because it one depends on how you measure it. So if we're talking strictly me and how I would measure success in this, there's no one country that does any one part of this quote unquote right to me because there are countries that favor certain types of disabilities or will listen more loud, like to um, listen more clearly to certain types of disability populations. I don't find that any one country really looks at disability holistically and the impact it has on education, society, on employment, on just like general well-being. So, you know, I, I actually would say no. Like in the U.S., you're more apt to find people who are going to use their rights and um, use litigation to get what they need. But in a lot of ways, that's not a win for many people either because it often will only get the bare minimum. So I don't really think there is a particular country that I think is doing it right, is doing right by the widest array of people with disabilities. That is so disheartening. <laughs> you know, like I, I know I often that may my, just bring us down. <laughs> no, 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 it's not, not in that way. I just mean like, I often yeah. think, um, I think the U S is so big and it's so imperfect, right? 
it, mm. it's easier, I think, sometimes to see what we want modeled in a given area in smaller mm. kind of tighter countries, I guess. And mm. the fact that the fact that you know you can't <laughs> point to a place to me. Um, and say, you know, they're kind of doing it right, right? Like, or this is the model we should be achieve, um, striving for, like, is heartbreaking to me in a way. Like, that yeah. that more people aren't concerned about um, accessibility um, and disability. And you use the word a couple times, um, ableism, that, that, mm. that ableism is kind of like systemic across the world um and could you talk to us a little bit about ableism and what what that is and what that means when you say that word yeah in its purest form ableism means discrimination in favor of people without disabilities so what um, might be said is able-bodied people um so discrimination against people with disabilities and that can be really explicit and that can be really implicit. So it could be something as obvious as um, refusing. So going back to those curb cuts, refusing to put curb cuts, um, you know, on a sidewalk because it changes the aesthetic of the sidewalk when that impacts the person's ability to get by. Right. So that's explicit ableism just saying no absolutely not you're you know useless <laughs> um implicit could be those little comments so in the digital world a good example that carries over uh from curb cuts as like a you know a person trying to go the aesthetic route and deciding they will absolutely refuse to create an accessible anything entryway etc in the digital world you'll often hear people say things like well is that like a must have or is that a nice to have if you're talking about products or you know like the, the development of a feature for a product and that probably enrages me more than anything um because it's not as explicit as like like blatantly denying someone's rights but if i were in the digital space to need a certain color contrast available on a web page someone's designing and um the proposed you know, design doesn't meet that. And I say, we need to change that contrast. You might get back. Is that a nice to have or a must have? And it's like, it's nothing really a nice to have if it impedes someone's access. So there's a lot of different explicit and implicit. Um, and those are just like really vague examples off yeah. the top of my head, but there's so many more. How do you, how do you deal with those situations? Like when, when you're clearly faced with somebody who doesn't even see the need right? For being inclusive in their design. Like when they ask that question, how, like, how are you, how do you answer? I mean, I obviously, I'm, 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 <laughs> like, I'm assuming this happens in a professional context and you most of the yeah. time, and you, you know, you can't, you can't rip off somebody's head and throw it across the room, across the room when they say these sorts of things, but like walk us, walk us through how you might yeah. address a situation like that. <laughs> Um, honestly, it, part of it depends on how my day has been and where I'm at in that moment. Sometimes I can be a lot more aggressive. Um, and you know what? There are times that it honestly warrants it because people need to wake up a bit. So I can't say that I'm uber professional all the time in my responses for things, but I usually bring it back to 
um, if someone's making a comment about something, like I've had people say, um, why would we do that for those people? It costs so much money. And usually my response immediately is, would you put that on LinkedIn? Would you type that out on LinkedIn? Would you put this whole conversation with you as who you are saying that? If the answer is no, <laughs> then you shouldn't be saying it here. You probably shouldn't be thinking it either. So we need to like work on several things. Um, I'm pretty adamant about my responses being um, really clear. Um, I'm trying to get people to think about if I wouldn't say that, why wouldn't I say that? You know, there's also things too, like um, if someone doesn't have access to something on your mobile app, right. And you were to say something like, you might hear a more implicit thing like, Oh, well, you know, those people don't use it anyway. Like thinking about people with disabilities and, you know, I have plenty of comments for that, but you would never say like, Oh, disabled people don't use it anyway. So we're not going to do it because it's extra. You would never say, Oh, um, Asian people don't use it anyway, so we're not going to do anything for them. Like you would never, or women don't use it, so we're not going to do anything. You would never replace that disabled with any other population that's underrepresented or discriminated mm -hmm. against. And you'll find a really big challenge with grappling with the ability to say that. But suddenly it's okay for disability to be included in that conversation. So it's just very strange to me. But it's something we call out, I call out, people I work with call out, the community calls out because we have to. Yeah. Yeah. Are people <laughs> like I'm assuming I'm assuming anyone who would say something like that um is probably ignorant of the reasons why, right? Are are people mm -hmm. do people tend to be receptive to hearing that they need to kind of change the way they're thinking about accessibility in their own you know, ableist kind of points of mm. view? It's a good question because I think part of why we, I say we, because I feel like I'm not talking on behalf of the, dis, like the disability for sure. profession, like accessibility professional um, community. But I do feel there's a collective understanding that like you do, there's a lot of the work that I do is technical in nature because I'm on the digital accessibility side but I really believe that more like 90% of the work I do comes down to education, but it's really hard to educate people when they can't get on par with you that they need to be educated. So I've always found that a comment, like, would you put that on LinkedIn and then working through, well, no, like the response is always going to be like, I don't know why, you know, and then working through like, well, why wouldn't you put that on LinkedIn? What does that say? Would you replace this word with another underrepresented? And like walking them through that conversation gets them engaged in like thinking about, oh, why am I saying this? Where is this coming from? And then it offers the in to kind of educate um, knowingly or unknowingly sometimes, but I find much more success doing it that way and kind of bringing to light the inherent ableism, giving it a name, and then requesting something of them to change that, which would be then educating, meaning that color contrast um, thing I brought up, I might bring up a color contrast simulator to say, the reason why I'm asking this is because this is what this might look like to someone who can't, you know, interact with that color scheme you're presenting. And it offers those opportunities to kind of provide the why. And hopefully with that information where they're like, oh my gosh, I'm second guessing my own belief system. Simultaneously, I'm understanding how this is a problem. You know, the hope is that they'll find their way to their way, at, you know, to have a seat at the table to start doing some work in the 
ableism area, anti-ableism area. Yeah, um, that anti-ableism, is is that mm. just um, trying to put into place policies and practices that actively resist ableist practices and policies and beliefs, or is it something else? Can you tell us a little bit more about anti-ableism? Yeah, I think it is that, but I think it's also a lot more of um, kind of calling out ableism in action to get just like a lot of these other um, kind of movements that we're seeing in light of this, a lot of, a lot of stuff for, for many years that are kind of coming to light and coming to head, especially in this year, more broadly and um, more obviously, it's thinking about a lot of these populations of people um, and how we're actively standing up for them and with them um, to fight back. And a lot of that does come to policy, but people on the ground who are experiencing this every day may not directly you know, impact policy in the way that you might be like, people might be thinking at home, like, you know, we're sitting there writing these laws and blah, 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 but it's small movements, it's community movements. It's, um, getting like, it's also like large movements. Like I work for a large corporation. Part of the work that I see as anti-ableist is immediately inserting, um, images of people with disabilities for, you know, big campaigns that are getting pushed through, whether or not they've been approved. <laughs> so it's like all of these types of things where you're like, oh, actually, we're going to just do this and I'm just going to do it because I'm in a position where I can do it. Or, mm-hmm. you know, so some of it's more, yes, policy and organized in that way. But policy has only got the U.S. in particular so far. There's, it, if anyway, if anything, it's in some ways held, held us back. So, um and I think there's a lot of really great stuff happening on social media now that people have a platform to to be able to start kind of speaking out against these things um, and doing things that like really disrupt people's thoughts about what people with disabilities look like and how they should or should not interact. And there's a lot of great people to follow on social media that um, I can definitely mention and shout out at some point too. Yeah. Um... Like what? Shout it out. Like who? Like, like what? what? Shout it <laughs> <Okay>. out. <laughs> um, so on Instagram, there's a, there's a lot of really, really uh, great people. Some of the people that I follow, like um, there's, I, I want to make sure that I have their handles right because one person is wheelchair Rapunzel, but I feel like there's a period between wheelchair and Rapunzel. <laughs> um, so I'll definitely have to like, I'll have to send you all of these people, but I follow her because She's an individual. She's in a wheelchair. She's a wheelchair user, a power wheelchair user, because people with power wheelchairs are even that much less represented in the world. Um, And she is really working super hard to help people understand that people with disabilities, disabled people are sexy too, no matter what their body looks like. Um, It really challenges like, well, why do you think that certain body types are better than others? and it's kind of, she's just out there just living her life like any other Instagram mid late twenties woman or individual, um, you know, just kind of just being sexy. And it's, I think it's just great because it needs to be out there. Like this needs, this conversation needs to happen. People with disabilities, disabled people have sex and um, think about sex. And I think it needs to be talked about more. So she's someone I love to follow. 
Um, oh, and then uh, there is a comedian mm-hmm. from uh, Britain, and he won. Oh, I always Britain's Got Talent, I think is what it is. And his handle is Lost Voice Guy. And he uses an augmentative communication device, um, which is basically so his, I think uh, he has cerebral palsy. And so his speech is more difficult to understand. So he uses um, a speech generating device. And he's hilarious. He's a comedian, um, super funny, super great to follow, has awesome jokes. Not all of his jokes are about disability because he's much more than just disability. So um, he's super fun to follow as well. There's a lot of really great people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if people were following, um, trying to make sure that I have names right. But if people have been following the news lately, there is a, a woman named Lizzie Velasquez. And she was in the news recently. Maybe, what is time? Yesterday was January. Um, maybe like in the middle of summer and, uh, she has a genetic disorder and there's an awful, awful, super ableist, um, TikTok thing going on where, oh, it was right before the start of school because they were taking her photo, mm-hmm. um, and they were passing that around and sh- like on TikTok and parents were showing her photo to their children and saying, this is your teacher for the new year. Oh, I remember that. And it was a picture that. of her. Oh, it was awful. It was absolutely absurd. It was so, I want to say that I'm surprised that I'm not surprised because of how awful our society is. Um, and so she has worked super hard to raise awareness about disability, physical differences. Um, and she's, incredible to follow so her name's lizzie velasquez and i think her um her handle's like little lizzie uh or little oh let me see little lizzie v she's awesome so she's a great one a great advocate to follow too mm-hmm. yeah and if you, so if, if you want to send us um the list of those we can drop totally. in the show notes um yeah. for people i will um yeah i remember yeah, that whole thing that they were doing with um, remote learning school kids like showing them pictures of Ugh. of people that um, we're supposed to believe like you said have something yeah. wrong, wrong with them or should be scary to children and it was yeah, disgusting exactly. it was it was absolutely disgusting and but then there was the whole it was disgusting there's like so many different examples that you can like point to like the witches and they yeah like, the hands that they manipulated mm-hmm. and the feet. Yeah. I'm unfamiliar with that. So, um, in Oh, the show, the witches. I think I'm remembering now. Maybe. Is it a show? I thought it was a movie or a movie. Maybe. Um, yeah, it was yeah. a movie. Yeah. The movie they just redid with Anne Hathaway. Yeah. So her character in the book, mm-hmm. the witches just have like claw like hands. Okay. But they like chose to make it so that she had like, two fingers or something but it's like an actual disorder yeah. that people actually have okay where they only yep. have like two fingers on their hands or something yeah and so people got really upset and she had to end up apologizing okay. or whatever yeah um yeah it's interesting too because like i think about um people with mental disorders um and accessibility mm-hmm. issues um what do you think about that well like there's this woman penelope trunk who is um, I think she's got Asperger's, but she's like also like some like high powered consultant. She writes these blogs 
and she has like a lot of followers. You know what I'm talking about? Penelope Trump. No, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, unless, oh no, not if, not if she's a consultant. I, I thought you were going to be talking about a different movie thing that's going on, no. but no, she's going. No, no, it's not a movie. She's- well, I think something like Asperger's is like, something like that is interesting to me because yeah. like people, mm-hmm. like there's an element, right, that I think people latch on to and sometimes people with Asperger's like demonstrate something that people can attach value to that they recognize like, mm. like, yep. like super math skills or they really knowledgeable. Attention to detail. Yeah. And then we say, Oh, that element of your, that element of your disability is valuable to me. Therefore mm-hmm. you are, you know, you now have more intrinsic value as a human being. And that like, exactly. That's something I've always thought is just kind of, gross in a way the way we you know what i mean like very capitalist way of thinking yeah yeah the the way we can focus on like elements of a a a person find value in just those things Mm -hmm. and say you're worth something because you know now now you're worth something because Mm -hmm. this one thing you 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 can do has Mm -hmm. value to me like I don't know. Sorry. I don't know if that was where you were going. Yeah. I don't know if it's where I was going. I'm just thinking uh, about other examples of the invisible disabilities uh, for accessibility. Like, um, uh, what was that book? To David Sedaris's um, brother who wrote that book. Oh, Running With Scissors? Yeah. No. He, oh, yeah. August and Burroughs. No, that was August and Burroughs. Yeah. yeah. Uh, August yeah. and Burroughs. No, no. Yeah. The brother of a writer um, who wrote, his name was Bill something. Okay. And he had some autism or something. I know Augustine you know Burroughs' brother had mm-hmm. um, yeah. Asperger's and he wrote a book. He wrote a book. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm just bringing yeah. examples of things. I don't know. It's just associated no, yeah. content. There's so many. There's so many. And then types I think about like. And then I think about like, you know, kids in school that have IEPs and then, mm-hmm. you know, like the teachers have to, um, you know, all the special education stuff. What I'm about- like, I'm no, I'm just, I'm literally at, I'm just thinking of examples of invisible <laughs> accessibility issues. <laughs> I'm yeah. just listing out things. Okay. I'm free associating here. Okay. You That's should fine. rein us back in. Yeah. Okay. Sawtooth. Well. Let's and Kelsey. You mentioned you mentioned education, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and I want to ask our expert here. Um, so, a wise person I know um, framed education for me in some ways like a corporation um, designed to engage in ableism. Can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that? Yeah. Um, and it kind of actually relates a little bit to what you just said to around the value of a person and how people determine that. I mean, this like, and it kind of relates to what Jen was saying too about, you know, like trying to figure out, you know, in schools when kids are young, like, I mean, ableism and how we frame disability start the second we've decided as a medical community to say that someone has a disability. So whether it's like the second a child's born or whether you acquire a disability or you've had a disability and you just learn about it. But the second that someone slaps a medical name on it, um, and really I should just quickly distinguish between a medical condition and a disability. So 
um, like you were mentioning before around migraines, right? So that's technically a medical condition, but it disables you in many ways, right? It can cause challenges socially. It can cause difficulties for you cognitively, um, organizationally, probably. So that's also a really important thing to think about is what do we actually mean by disability? Um, But anyway, coming back, um, and education is so fascinating to me because, man, so background, I am a speech-language pathologist, and I am a teacher of the deaf. I worked in K-12 and in early intervention and in community transition and um, in higher education uh, for about 13 years in total. Um, And I recently, as in a couple of years ago, which is wild to think about, made a transition from public education to corporate. And so now I've kind of had these like different experiences. And for so long, I was so ingrained in thinking that education was um, the more like wholesome place to be, I guess, or the place where you felt like in some ways protected from all the crap of the world and that you felt like people would be really progressive and thinking about things in a really great way. And honestly, it wasn't until I worked in higher education (laughs) that I realized how so not true that really all is. And I mean like some, some stuff in K-12, but, um, and then even now moving into corporate, um, I think I realized how even less, true it like that reality is that education holds this sort of beacon of light and truth um i think it's a whole bunch of crap and if i really had thought of this earlier i probably myself maybe never would have gone into like gone to higher education um so i think the second that we've determined that essential value of someone that they have a disability or a disabling quote-unquote condition medical condition um we place barriers in their way every step of the way, whether we do it actually explicitly or we do it implicitly in education. When you start off in K-12 or even before then, even before you get to kindergarten, if you were born with a certain type of disability, you may qualify for early intervention, which tells you and your family, there's something wrong with you essentially, and that we need specialists to come in to help fix it and help your parents to help continue to fix it. And then we realize that some things like can't be quote unquote fixed. So then we push kids into schooling and this IEP, this individualized education plan follows them that calls out every area of their challenges and difficulties. It lays them all out and it sets these goals to kind of like work towards overcoming them, I guess. (laughs) Um, I really question so many of these pieces now. And then all these professionals uh, who have been trained. So this is where the systemic issue comes in. I mean, it's been here the whole way. The medical world meets the educational world meets the specialty specialist world where my speech pathology education was rampant with ableism, how we talked about people, how we diagnosed people, how we evaluated people, how we provided therapy. And this all follows these students and it helps. And it helps them in a not so great way most of the time determine who they are and what value they hold. And they carry that with them forever. Um, and it starts in education. So I don't know if you want to interject before I keep going on my rampage over here. <laughs> no, I like the thing um, thing that was popping into my mind is, is yeah. as I was hearing you talk was like these people – 
like uh, these administrators, these mm-hmm. systems, like mm-hmm. obviously to me think they're helping, right? They're like trying mm-hmm. to help. Like, and how do we reframe that? Like, how do how do we re- reframe that approach to not um, doing um, more damage? You know, yeah. Like, how, how do we? Well. Yeah, I mean, go ahead. I think a prime example of that is standardized testing. We're telling these children they mm-hmm. need to meet a certain threshold yep. to be okay. Yeah. You know, which is not every kid to have can, value. Yeah. Right. Not every kid can get there, you know, and it's like they put a lot of pressure on these kids. And to, it's, for me, it's not even about not every kid can get there, right? It's about we've, we have set up these artificial benchmarks mm-hmm. by which we measure people's value right. like your ability to get a fucking 800 on SAT. your english <laughs> part of your sat or your yeah. math like you know like i mean it goes to so much in society where we've now you know we yep. now hold value in desk jobs as opposed to vocational work which is a bunch of baloney and malarkey mm-hmm. because like i can't sew a button on a pair of pants like <laughs> yeah you know, and yeah. I feel like I missed out on so many opportunity to learn other things because I was, it's drilled in these schools to, you know, go to college and get a degree and blah, 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 bullshit. And I don't know. And, and, I, and I'm thinking, and What's I'm thinking, so and I'm thinking, Kelsey, yeah. like, I think it starts even before K through 12, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's yeah. that early intervention for, <laughs> yeah, it's like that doctor or that whoever yep. who says 100%. you're, you, you know, um, you know, your, your child who, you know, may look differently, you know, well, because they were born with, you know, a, a, ge- a genetic um, condition that causes their body to look different. They're, you know, like, I mean, like, here's like a minutia example right. of like a pretty, I think, common, maybe potentially problem, you know, like when we had our son and they told and he had issues breastfeeding and yeah. they told us he was tongue tied and that we should mm. cut his phrenectomy, you know, have a phrenectomy on him and, mm-hmm. you know, that he would it would impact his speech later on in life. Oh, he was like up, up and down the list of like why we yep. should have this procedure done on him. And I was just like. But I can, I can pump my milk, give it to him, and he'll be fine. So but, why can't I just do mm-hmm. that? So we made that decision not yeah, to do it. Yeah, it is interesting. The medical community and the mm-hmm. breastfeeding community was very invested in uh, in convincing us there was something wrong with our child, right? Like, yep. uh, and like for all the reasons Jen just said, like he was going to in, in, encounter you know, a, a terrible life filled with obstacles and we better be prepared for it yep. if we don't cut his tongue, <laughs> part of his tongue off. <laughs> like, you know, like- And I was like, and we were yeah, just horrified. Yeah. We were like, we don't want to do that. That's just like- Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, so I guess where I was going with that is I think I think it, like it's it probably starts, there, there are other right ableist- away other ableist systems like the you know mm-hmm. the medical and everywhere no offense to the medical community i have you know we have doctors in our family but you know it's mm-hmm. it's these systemic isms right that mm-hmm. get 
whatever they get enculturated into societies and they're hard to get they're hard to flush out and get rid of so um well yeah because they're built into policies they're built into education right like going to talk about the medical education it's like you know it's not about having a fence towards the medical community it's about maybe they need to start questioning their own education a bit more in certain areas um you know like how do we get people to do that speech pathology in my program rampant with ableist ideas and othering and fear and ensuring that we can kind of like write certain kids or certain people or fix them. It's this idea of fixing, which is really messed up when you really think about it. And I think, you know, one time that it really hit me um, was I had a student with autism when I was working as a speech pathologist in high school. And it hit me how intensely this is ingrained in families as well, like parents. Um, because this child had been through the whole system with an IEP his whole life. His mother um, was really deeply ingrained in the disability community from a, a parenting family standpoint and was actually someone at the time that I really looked up to for from a family perspective. And so I was working with her son on social communication skills. He was like 17 at the time. And it was really fascinating because in a lot of ways, I had just seen him making progress in, in not so much the way of like, you know, making lots of different friends or et cetera, but he had a lot of friends and he had really certain like specific interests. And I remember sitting at a table with her during an IEP meeting and she said she was very upset because he hadn't made the progress that she wanted. He hadn't made friends that she wanted him to make all of these things, listing off all of this. And I just remember looking at her and being like, who do you want him to be? Like, he's here and he has friends, he has hobbies, he has interests. They might not be your desired hobbies and interests or the Mm. friends you want him to have, but do you want him to be a frat boy or do you want him to just be who he is? Because I don't intend to fix him to make him like a bro. (laughs) Like it's just not, not my plan. (laughs) So I just remember sitting there and just being like, Oh my gosh, even this person who has had so much training on anti-ableism on neurodiversity and all of this is sitting here in this conversation with me about her son and literally basically begging him to be fixed. And I'm like, but fixed, like who, why is this kid over here on the football team? Your go-to for an ideal, right? He's not very interesting. Your son is super interesting. He's a great kid. Like it's just, it was just fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Poor kids. Yeah, that yeah. must be really difficult to have to um, face day in and day out as somebody doing that work. How do you, what do you do when you go home and you, like, what What do you do? Oh, man. Do you just <laughs> cry? Like, is that, yeah. Uh, I mean, it makes me think a lot about the people in my family with different disabilities and their ages and what happened with them kind of growing up and going through these systems that were ill-equipped to even talk about this. Um, uh, so, and how they've kind of gotten where they are and what they're doing and how they kind of see their sense of self and where like these kids are today. I think the benefit that kids have today is just like looking at, like having social media in many ways that it's so wrong, at least they have role models to kind of look up to and 
think about. So I have hope in that regard. Yeah. I also have a lot of hope um, just in like, um, you know, in the community itself. Like I love this community. I, there's so much to be learned and so much fun to be had. And I try to focus on those things, but man, therapy does a lot of wonders um, <laughs> and I highly recommend it. And just surrounding yourself with people that, get it I guess and really are willing to talk about it and to listen even if they don't get it to when you need to talk about it um and not just superficially because this is layered this is um like built into the fabric of our society and you know even myself I find that I'm constantly unpacking things that I've learned inherently about you know like because of ableism in my everyday life and existence that it's just like constant. So this is also this culture of just calling each other out in like the most loving and caring way when you're a part of this community, but also with like really expecting that people are willing to face it and move forward. So, um, and drink water, all the LaCroix. <laughs> yes. Drink, drink, sleep. drink Lots water, <laughs> drink water and therapy. Both, both things we're huge. Yeah. We're both we're both it's huge true. proponents of that. That's true. We can get behind that. I wanted things. to I wanted <laughs> to ask you um, a little bit about your experience um, in the corporate world versus K through twelve mm. and higher education. Is it yeah? Is it a money issue in your mind, or is there something else going on here? Like. Um, and and I, I have no knowledge of what happens in the corporate world. So this this yeah. question's coming from a place of ignorance. I'll confess that. Like in in my <laughs> mind though, I would assume corporations might be driven by fear of being sued, right? And oh, yeah. they have the money, right, to engage in mm. the work around this or i mean tell you know course correct me here yeah okay yeah yeah here's the really interesting thing education has the money they just don't care enough to allocate it where it needs to go um i say that because technically education is also backed by the federal government there's a lot of funds that are available the federal government also has certain laws that uh, higher education, K-12, have to abide by. Um, and there's no reasonable reason to not do so. So when higher education, for example, accepts funding from the government, state, federal, et cetera, they also are signing off saying that that money will be used to do things like provide certain supports and services to those who need it to provide accessible technologies, to procure services and supports that are accessible in nature, but they don't do that. Um, and they don't do that and they perpetuate a cycle of ableism and inaccessibility and they don't seem to care. <laughs> in a lot of places, they don't seem to care. I think that there's actually not much difference between corporate and higher education in particular, except that there's more freedom, quote unquote, in the framework when you hit something like corporate. I wouldn't say that there's actually all that much more money on the mm. offset. The interesting part is, though, however, is that um, this is where I was saying before that in some ways, like being bound by these federal and state laws 
this is a, a deeper conversation, but being bound by certain federal and state laws means that you actually more so have the fear of being sued. Higher Ed to me has the fear of being sued so on the forefront of their mind, they can't even see people with disabilities as people. Um, in corporate, you have a different kind of set of laws that you're supposed to adhere to. They aren't as specific or as, um, they're much more nuanced in nature. So although there's always a fear for anyone getting sued anywhere, I think the reality is that if you're in a large corporation, you have a target on your back no matter what. So yeah. that's not really anything new to you. Like using the, we might get sued card isn't really, it's not that it's not, it's good. It's not good, but it's also not something to necessarily be super fearful of because it doesn't, it doesn't shock anyone. Right. Um, so I think, and having the law be your driving force is the number one thing that will keep you back from progress because you still don't see people with disabilities or disabled people as people. And that causes a whole slew of problems in its own. So I would, I am reflecting on this frequently lately um, because of these two worlds that I've been in in different ways and corporate has been much more freeing and it's been much easier to use my voice without fear, which I can talk about if you're interested as well. Um, despite not having like the really amazing backings of something like a union, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> that is fascinating. Thank you for that explanation. Yeah. That helped crystallize some things for me. I mean, I mean, I mean, we both have wandered the hallowed halls of higher education, and one one of the things you constantly hear is crying poor, right? Like we yeah. have no money, we All have right. no money for that. How are we going to do that? You know, like, and you're right, the money's there. Oh yeah, the money's there. I have a whole other problem with how it's spent. Yeah, that's like a whole other bird. It's yeah. like how it's spent, but also don't even get me started on sports, but that's a whole other oh, ball game. Yeah. And, I, yeah. And, and sorry, the, the thing I want to clarify is the crying poor yeah. is usually done by <laughs> yeah. administrators who are not doing yeah. the work of trying to support um, right. yep. people um, in higher education. It's, uh, uh, you know, though those people who are on the ground doing their their damn best to do this work and help right. people. Um, you know, they they are rightfully pointing out that they don't have funding, right? right. But the administrators are yep. making the claims that they don't have the money being allocated to them right. for this. And my my sense is it's a lack of um, it's a lack of it's a lack of will. You know, I don't know. Maybe it's you can talk more will about that. And desire. Yeah. But man, it's also, it also comes back to this idea that people with disabilities aren't worthy. Yeah. So like, it, it just like points directly to that because if they saw value and worth in people and disabled students, then certainly there would be money filtered there. It, people shouldn't have to experience something to find value in it, but for whatever reason they do. So like when you look at the CEO of Microsoft, right? He has two, two children or three children with disabilities. And Microsoft has the biggest push for any corporation anywhere. 
to include people, disabled people across every facet of their organization in every single way. And where do you think that came from? Like, yes, it came from the hardworking people on the ground every day being like, this matters. But then it also came from a CEO being like, oh, I know this matters and I care about this and we are going to fund this because this is also what's going to keep our society moving. And of course there are problems with Microsoft, but there's problems with everything, but it's, it's a step in a direction. It's a big step, a big series of steps in the direction under leadership that does happen to value people with disabilities because he lives with people who are disabled every single day and they're his children. Yeah. So it's about the, his why is easy. Right. The culture that you cultivate. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I mean, you mentioned, but you don't build that out of legal stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sports, sports, what about it? sports versus the arts? You know, the age yeah. old thing that is prevalent in schools across this country, yeah. you know, and, you know, yeah. and this pandemic, like, you know, it highlights so much of these indiscrepancies between, between things, you know, like I, I know a woman who was, you know, very, very upset about school this year, you know, that it's remote and that the athletics programs where, you know, oh, the kids need to play sports, you know, but her kid's not a sport-minded child. He is in band, and he, (laughs) you know, they were Uh, like, what about the band program? What about music and arts mm -hmm. and theater? And, you know, they don't, you know, it's it's just the mindset, you know, that we, you know, how how much do athletes get paid? How, what is, why is sports so important in this country that there are restaurants one out of every what six restaurants are failing in this country because they are not able to operate, but you know, the athletics program, the NFL and you know, so that's like exactly like the money is there. This is not for lack of money, right? This is a lack of determining the worth of people based on their, whether or not they have validity or worth, right. right? Like the money is always there. Yeah. Yeah. And there's another, and help correct me if I'm wrong. Again, I, I ask a lot of these questions out of ignorance, right? Um, in my <laughs> mind, in my mind, there's a lot of money to be made or at least work to be generated from assuming people with disabilities are different enough to need all of of that right like the especially in k through 12 right like it 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 gives people work to do to say these people are so different that they have to Mm -hmm. they have to have ieps they have to be in special you know classes like I, i like I like. I feel like there's some kind of nefarious capitalist engine yes, behind it's this. So capitalist. Am I crazy thinking that way? No, because then also think about like the pharmaceutical industry mm-hmm. and how desperately they're trying to eradicate disability or use certain. Of course, there are certain disabilities that require pharmaceutical support. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But like, there's plenty of different things that are problematic in these different communities. Yes, like. Uh, just thinking about we essentially to your point we make money off of ensuring that people with disabilities kind of stay flat that they that they go from you know early intervention directly into k-12 directly into a community service 
their community um, transition program and then directly into, you know, like maybe higher education, but that's never really like pushed. And is that because our ed- higher education is ill-equipped to support people and ensure that they have what they need? I mean, yeah, but should that be a reasonable mm-hmm. reason for that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. Like, mm-hmm. so it's like all this like cyclical and then the employment issue, right? The fact that a large majority of people with disabilities, disabled people are under or not employed at all and how we perpetuate that just like in higher ed by procuring things that are inaccessible to a variety of different people who use different technologies by creating inaccessible workplaces um, by certain attitudes and culture right all of these things feed into one another and it creates this creates this like snowball effect and it all kind of if you look across like that whole span, right? It starts with that doctor and it goes all the way through the lifespan and just right back again. It's like this sick, disgusting cycle of like how to keep people flat and just push them through instead of just like allowing them to just live their lives and belong just as anyone else that we'd, mm. we'd hope would feel like they belong. Yeah. There's a huge capitalist advantage to ensuring that people uh, from underrepresented populations stay that way. And disability yeah. is no different, unfortunately. I don't know why I'm like now. I'm thinking about that movie we saw the other night. Um, the Sound of Metal. Sound of Metal. Yeah, are you familiar with that? that? It's um. Is it, that a new one? Yeah, it stars um. Riz, is it by Sia? Riz Ahmed, and he plays a rock musician oh. who suddenly, like, basically overnight, oh. loses his hearing and. He has to, and, and it's funny, it touches on a lot of what we're talking about here. He, um, spoiler alert, mm. people, um, this has been out a couple of weeks, but I think it's important to talk about this, actually. It, yeah. I'm connecting some dots yeah. now that we've talked about this. So he um, he begins, he, he immediately says, I have no place in this world now. I'm a musician. I've lost my hearing. He tries to fix it. Right. And he goes to try to get implants right and that that implant the cochlear implant industry and doctors like push him really hard Mm -hmm. and say this is going to fix all your problems and he latches onto that like because he says like now i am broken i need this i have to live my life the way it has been lived all along um i don't have the value i used to have because i lost my hearing and then he he engages with a um he's also an addict he's also an addict right. so he engages with a a deaf community um like a recovery like a, a recovery deaf mm. community they, they teach him sign language he stays there for a while but then he sneaks out and he gets these cochlear implants and then he is like absolutely surprised that they're actually to they don't do what they were promised to do they don't give. Mm-hmm. They don't return him back to, to the way he was. Back to the way he was. Yeah. Um, and then he's faced with some really hard like choices about like who am I? His identity. Yeah. Basically. What is? Yeah. What is my value in this world? And I don't know. It was such a good movie. It. it you know. Yeah. It, now that we've spoiled it for you, go and watch good. it. No. We said, oh, sorry. <laughs> I would totally watch it. I didn't. I, never, I hadn't heard um, of it. I'm so bad with movies and mm. TV shows, but yeah. No, this was definitely worth watching. I, I'd love to get your take on it after you've seen it. I mean, it sounds like it. There's so much. Like, I will also say, like, it's always important. 
I remember in like when I was going through um, my speech pathology degree, um, I had already seen the series of movies called The Sound and the Fury um, from my teacher of the deaf program as like a warning. <laughs> and then I saw mm-hmm. it in when I was going through my audiology courses uh, for my speech pathology degree, they showed it again. And I was like, oh, I was like, you know, this is a really messed up series of movies. Um, that follows a family, a deaf, capital D deaf, which is like deaf culture, born deaf, born deaf into a deaf family, sign language is their native language person, family, um, who had a child who was born and they were kind of like pushing to get um, like the hearing family around them was trying to push them to get cochlear implants for their child, even though the child was deaf and born into a deaf family. And it followed them through this whole process. And in the second movie, the child ends up getting cochlear implants. And then at the very end of the movie, you let the credits roll. The Cochlear Implant Foundation sponsors Sponsored the, movie. the movie. So always check who's... Yeah, exactly. Were these, were these documentaries? So check. <laughs> were these documentaries? Yeah. I think I saw those. Um, yeah. 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 They were painful yeah. in a lot of ways. Heart-wrenching almost just because like, you could really like... Uh, you could just, you really, when you watch it, you know who is really questioning this and yeah. who, and you wonder how much they paid off certain people to do certain things. And it just like kind of breaks your heart. Yeah. And a but, big, why did I just forget the name of the movie we were talking yeah. about? The, the Sound, Sound of, of metal. metal. Yeah. A big part of it yeah. though focuses on, um, he gets kind of paired up, um, the, the guy who runs this, um, deaf recover, um, drug recovery program. Like has a couple conversations with him though about you. You have to understand that your deafness is not the problem. Like that's the focus. Mm-hmm. That's the approach of the movie. It's like mm-hmm. deafness isn't the problem. Yeah. It's <laughs> excuse me. It is the ableist system that like you as a hearing person participated in that yeah. makes you view this as a problem right. as the problem. Yep. And you it, until you exactly. grapple with that until you. You're gonna be, you're gonna be chasing the next cochlear implant like forever, and like it's so touching. Like I, you know, it just, I don't know. I'm coming at it from a very naive perspective too, but (laughs) I, I loved it. Yeah, no, it's it's so important, and it also gets to the heart of the really interesting thing where like ableism is even rampant in some ways in the disability community as well, right? Like, there's a lot of people who within the disability community who struggle to kind of see outside of their own disability and give worth to other people, different types of just like it's rampant in our society. And just the fact that you're, you know, born into a society, if you were born with your disability that views you inherently as less able and less worthy, you have some really interesting ableist ideas ingrained in you, even if you have a disability. Um, but it, it's really fascinating to kind of t- like, when you're listening to the conversation happen about people who like, if you ever get into more of a philosophical conversation with people who are disabled, one of the really interesting things that comes up, depending on who you're talking to is this idea of what is disabled, right? So like if you're born with a disability, are you really disabled? Like putting the medical stuff aside, right? Medical conditions and all that aside, are you really disabled? You're disabled by society and how it's built, but, are you disabled if you're born with it 
because you don't know any different, right? Like that's right. your existence. You're even if you're born into an ableist society with all of these problems that exist and how the world has been built to not fit you or ha- to not allow you to feel like you belong, you're still born with that. And that's just like inherently who you are versus in a situation where someone is born able-bodied, quote unquote, without a disability and then experiences a disability. So like this person that you're talking about, right? He was hearing his whole life. He has a situation that causes him to not be able to hear anymore. So there's often like these debates going back and forth being like, he actually is quote unquote disabled because he had something and lost it and didn't know any other way to experience, like to find worth in himself, which goes back to that idea of like internalized ableism. But it is really interesting to have that conversation of like, if you're like, what is disability? (laughs) What does it really mean? Um, And how do people who experience disability differently experience the idea of disability? If you get what I'm saying. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, for some reason I'm thinking back to, um, I don't know, like a decade or so ago, I was real, I was reading a lot about migraines and history of migraines Mm. and reading books about migraines. And one particular book I was reading was telling me, I forget which one, but about an indigenous culture that um, treated people who experienced migraines, especially the kind I have that involve visual auras as um, being um, spiritually enlightened people. Like the like, man. I'm not sure who it. I'm Was not it sure. The man? Maybe I, I'm. I'm mm. totally blanking. But like, um, I'm not bringing it up just because I experience migraines. Um, and I think that I'm enlightened. Yes, but you're enlightened. um, but it's about it's about how the culture right yes. views that particular thing mm-hmm. right and absolutely. So I don't know. I just I thought that was interesting. Like yeah. it doesn't have to. Those people, those people in that culture were venerated, you know, yeah. like, um, yeah. but, but not necessarily above other people. There was just a place for, for them right. in that particular manifestation of being like, yeah, that's how I want to say it. Like, the, you know, that, that way of being. In there's the a really, yeah, there's a really interesting book called the spirit catches you and you fall down and it kind of goes through the lives of this Hmong family who um, had a child uh, who was disabled. And I can't exactly remember what the disability specifically or the medical condition that they had was, but it did cause, I believe like a significant amount of seizures. And I remember they had moved to the U S and of course, I mean, you know, regardless of whatever anyone thinks, like they, the family believed that their child kind of like had this particular relationship with their God and that these seizures were uh, this idea of enlightenment. And, um, you know, the seizures were causing also damage to the brain and all sorts of things. And so moving to the U.S., of course, the culture here saw them not, the family not actively seeking medical support as neglect. But in their culture, that's just kind of how they worked through this child experience. And it does really become super fascinating about how culture, you know, dictates policies, dictates your medical decisions, dictates all of these things and how, um, you know, like this child could have been suffering physically 
I, I don't obviously know this family and I only read the story from a certain particular account, but it does really get super interesting when you start thinking about culture and how it impacts certain decisions and how someone's viewed um, and what their worth is because the worth of this child is incredibly high, but from the outside looking in from a U.S perspective they were neglectful parents who um, obviously didn't care about their child and it's like but I mean what would a U.S. parent have done maybe seek medical attention and then what thrown them in a life skills classroom where they played with Play-Doh all day when they could have been doing something totally more stimulating and interesting else I don't know so like who's right who knows no one (laughs) yeah I don't know what so what is what is the what is our what is what is our path for confronting ableism right is it and is it adopting a a mindful anti-ableist perspective you know like like we have it's not like the way to combat racism is through anti-racism right and and, Mm -hmm. and and it is naming the thing and working against it educating people like help is it the same here for ableism it's very similar. It's, I mean, they're really fat. You know, it's really interesting too, is like, there's so many intersections with this. I was talking to a person at work recently who asked if I wanted to leave a certain diversity initiative, right. Um, focused on, um, uh, on, um, uh, black women in corporate and in technology. And I was like, yeah, like not me just lead it specifically, but on a team, if I wanted to be a part of it. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to be a part of this. This is really important. I'm working on my own anti-racism work and in groups and on my own. And so this is a really great way to kind of help support that for myself and for others. Sure. And then immediately I was like, can we talk a little bit about how disability is a part of this conversation? I'm assuming that's also why you want me to be here. And she was like, oh no, we're just talking about black women. And I was like, well, black women have disabilities too. I don't understand. And she was just kind of like, oh my God. Like I didn't even think it it was like the light bulb went off and it was just so fascinating to me. And it just really gets to the heart of the issue that people with disabilities aren't even considered people. So it's really hard to move forward with any type of progress until people can recognize disabled people as people. So we have to really actively yes be anti-ableist really start being willing to like unpack every single piece of anti-ableist rhetoric that we're used to hearing about the worst of humans um i think the pandemic has been a really interesting conversation because there's a lot of people who aren't working right now because they've lost their jobs and of course there's this level of idea that they're worthless if they're not working which is of course a beautiful capitalist idea and it's really getting people to question, like, obviously, they, they inherently know they're not worthless because they have worked before. Um, they have families they're taking care of, friends they're engaging with. And they're slowly starting to realize that perhaps their job is not their only or their ability to work is not their only sense of worth. But it really makes you question, you know, when we're talking about a large percentage of the disabled population is not working, not for lack of trying, but for lots of inaccessibility. Um, or sometimes for lack of trying, because sometimes people with disabilities have conditions where they need to rest. And I think the pandemic has shown the value of rest, especially when you're constantly in a fight or flight mode, which many people who are disabled are, because the world is 
horrific <laughs> in many ways. Um, and so fight or flight is very real. And I think this is the first time in a long, long time where we have an opportunity to help people understand like your worth isn't centered around this. Neither is anybody else's. Um, yeah, that's a really good point. But I don't think we're using that yet. Yeah, no, so, I, re- yeah, yeah. I remember hearing something on NPR a while back, maybe a year or so ago, about how work has become the religion of people in the United States. It's like the thing we mm. find our self-worth and our value in. Mm. And um, it's really scary for people when they get decoupled from that. Like they don't know who they are. Yeah. You know, um, mm-hmm. so scary. are there resources for people to, to engage like, um, with, with anti-ableism, you know, I'm, th- I'm trying, I'm thinking I, uh, this is, this is bad to admit. I don't know who wrote the, how to be an anti-racist <laughs> book. Um, Abraham Kendi. Yeah. Thank you. Stomping Jen. Um, are there books like that? Um, because I think people, um, I mean, I know we have the problem of, of people probably not even recognizing that ableism is a thing, right? Like, I think a lot of people, yep, if you, if, yeah, if you say to them, do you know what racism is? They'll at least acknowledge they know what it is, right? I think a lot of people yeah. though, don't, know if, what don't even is. know what ableism is. And like, yeah. how can we begin engaging people to talk about this problem like i'll confess like i i yeah i'm not even sure i know how to talk about it in in a way that is is respectful to everybody that you know because nobody taught me how i like i don't you don't have the language quite i don't have the language i don't have the toolkit um you know but also you know like i i think that's true of a lot of things you know Mm -hmm. like i think that's true of race as well it's true of gender in many ways i think the reality is you're gonna mess up and i think that's part of owning it too is like if we didn't jump in and knowing that you know and dedicating to essentially doing the work right what we're doing in many other spaces hopefully that everyone's engaging in is like you're going to mess up and actually if you don't you're going to miss out on some really heavy learning opportunities that yeah. I think are some in some ways more valuable than kind of doing it right, quote unquote. Um, because I know like growth happens in the discomfort. It just does. Mm-hmm. So like if you mess up, you're certainly going to learn something and you're probably going to internalize that and you're going to do better next time because you've also learned a deeper reason as to why that was such a huge mess up. So I feel like it adds an extra layer of like, taking the pressure off and like just going with the mindset, I'm going to do the best I can and I'm going to actually put in time and effort and I'm going to learn along the way. And you know what? Some people are just not going to like you and that's just how it goes. And other people are going to be like, thank you. And like, I want to do this work with you or some people in the disability community are not going to thank you. Cause they're going to be like, where the hell were you? And that's okay too, because I think we can all be asking ourselves the same question. Yeah. So I think it's just, you know, less about the um, gratitude from the disability community or less about being seen as the correct ally and just working toward it instead. Yeah. I think that's the bigger thing. So, um, for That's people, li- thank you for that. Yeah, and for people listening to this, yeah. what would you know? Sorry, this is going to sound stupid. Googling um, anti ableism <laughs> resources is that a good place for people to kind of like start? Maybe um, you could do that. Yeah. I think one 
place that I love, if people love podcasts, um, like if your podcast listeners are also lovers of other podcasts or this platform, this type of platform, there is a podcast called um, Disability Visibility. Mm. I, it's by Alice Wong. Highly recommend it. She's incredible. And the people who are on her show um, are incredible. They talk about really interesting topics. Um, I think it's called Disability Visibility. Let me just double check because um, there's a book also called Disability Visibility um, that is written. It's a whole bunch of stories by people who are disabled in a variety of experiences throughout the world. And she has like collected them and edited them. And it is like the best, most current single-handed depiction of disability across so many different ages, genders, um, different types of disabilities, cultures, et cetera. So I highly, highly recommend start with disability visibility. Um, and there's another, um, if you, from an accessibility standpoint, of course, it costs money to access disability visibility as a book. Um, there is a free plain language version. If you go, if you type in disability visibility plain language, it's like about, I want to say maybe a hundred pages less. And it's kind of, it's language that's a bit easier to read and understand. But then there's also, if you go to the disability visibility project, um, there's a book called resistance and hope essays by disabled people. And that is completely free. And it's a really excellent book. Um, I would start with those books or that podcast. And I would also watch Crypt Camp, which talks about the, it's a documentary on Netflix that really chronicles where the push for disability inclusion happened from like a, a human rights perspective in like 60s, 70s. Um, and that kind of has a big focus on the work of Judy Human, who's a big um, advocate in the U.S. for um, civil and human rights of people with disabilities. So the podcast is Disability Visibility Project, Disab and then the book okay. is Disability Visibility. Yeah, and just for yeah. people listening, um, because internet audio yeah. sometimes sucks. Um, Kelsey said, "Crip, yeah. Crip Camp. It's C R I P C A M P." And I've seen that documentary. I think yeah. it's on Netflix or Amazon, one of those places. Um, you yeah, can, you can yep. see that. Um, it's okay. Really good. <laughs> so, so start there, people mm -hmm. listening to this. Start um, there, and no. follow people on social media. Especially follow people. There's this one way that we kind of whenever I give talks on implicit bias. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just, this is a good one. There's one thing that I always ask people to do, and you know, uh, I'm starting a talk on um, ableism, and it's to really think about the closest eight to ten people in your life that are not family members. Who are your go-tos, right? Who do you confide in? Who do you trust? And just like take a second and just like on the top of your head, think about those eight to 10 people, right? And then to go down the list and think, what are the genders um, of those people? Are they widely representing, you know, the world today? Um, what is um, the race of those different people that I consider? Are they all the same? Are they different? Um, same thing with ethnicity. Uh, and then thinking about disability. Does anyone in your eight to 10 have a disability? And then just kind of like starting to think to yourself, if not, wow, we've got some work to do to really start getting broadening our perspective or wondering why the people we most trust and think about in our inner circle maybe look like us, 
maybe think like us, maybe talk like us, maybe walk like us. And it really starts to get getting you to think, you know, like what's going on here. Um, and that can kind of be a helpful place to start as well. It's just like, look inward, look around you. Um, what does your world look like? Yeah. And, and I'm thinking, and I like that um, as an exercise. Um, and I'm thinking if you, um, hopefully these are people like, Kelsey said they're people, your eight closest friends. And um, this is going to be another stupid question. Like, is it, I'm, I'm assuming it's okay to ask a close friend this, but like, can, can you ask a person, or do you have a disability you're dealing with that I should know about? Like, how, how can people ask that question? I guess, do you have a suggestion? I think it depends on your relationship. Okay. Yeah, it totally depends on your relationship. So like, I know for like myself, if I'm, um, it's, and I know, I guess I don't ever really ask it outright unless the situation would warrant it. And I would think, I think I just feel like for most people, it would come up if they felt comfortable talking about it with you. So um, I typically stay away from asking about it unless a certain specific is situation warrants it, I guess. Um, but I know if I, one way that I can, I find myself being able to help rid people of shame and talking about disability who might experience it. We know that a lot of people with invisible disabilities experience shame around disability or have difficulty talking about it because of ableism, inherent ableism. Um, and so I find that if I sense or if like someone's talking about something that if I talk about my own disabilities um, more openly and um, kind of like putting it out there, then the conversation sometimes just happens on its own. And sometimes people, I've met plenty of people who haven't realized that what they have is in particular a disability related to a medical condition they have or a series of disabilities that contribute to, oh, you know, their existence every day. And there are some enlightening moments in that too, where, and sometimes people seek a diagnosis and sometimes people are like, well, this is just who I am and this is how it goes and this is how I'm living. But I, I guess I would never ask it, really. Um, yeah. But I would offer up my own information. Okay, thank you. I, I think that that's a yeah. great thing to be thinking about. And I'm sorry, this just popped into my head. The most, yeah. If there was one human emotion I could get rid of, it's shame. Like shame has yeah. has fucked up my life, like in so many ways. <laughs> like, where and, did and that come from? Yeah. I I don't want to get into it here, but you know where it came from, like. <laughs> But, and like, just the shame, like unnecessary shame people feel like around everything, like bodily functions, sex, like you're standing in the world around ability, like, you know, like all that stuff. Like, I I hate shame. (laughs) Sorry. No, I'm I'm not like laughing. I'm just, dare you. I'm just like bearing my soul and you laughed. Sorry. I'm not. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I'm just thinking about that. Like, I think there's something in yeah. there and we don't need to explore it now, but it's just. Trauma. That thing yeah. is trauma. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> okay. I, I, it's yeah. trauma informs almost everything. So. All right. Let's lighten yeah. it up a little bit. Um, yeah. You know, that, <laughs> I, that, that was, I just. Yeah. I, you like threw like a heavy brick on there and now you want to lighten it up. Me? Oh, yeah, the shame brick. Yeah. I did throw the shame brick. Do you want to shame me for that? No. <laughs> okay. Um, so, um, Kelsey Hall, um, tell yeah. us, what do you like to do for fun? What do you like to do for, for fun? fun? When you're not, when you are not when, working to better uh, the world, 
what do you like to do for fun yeah i mean i really like a good meme session so (laughs) i really love i have fallen down the pandemic meme scroll but man a good meme really gets me and it can cheer me up at any turn um but actual activities that's like i guess that can't really be a hobby it's just a hole i fall down but um now i heard i heard during I, this pandemic yeah. you've been hiking um hi- you told us you were hiking but i yes, heard you have been lot. delving into watercolors oh yeah tell us I, about that i fell down a different hole of watercolors so we're supposed to take a watercolor class so i grew up doing art i really love art I never really deeply fostered this side of myself and I'm still not doing it as deeply as I would like to, but I really just never, and this was probably capitalism. I'm going to bring it back to that, but I never went down that route because it just, you know, wasn't quote unquote fruitful, but I love it. And I love painting. I used to paint with oil. Then I moved to acrylic. And then I just, um, I follow this uh, poet and artist named Mari Andrew and she's lovely And you should go check out her Instagram. And I was like, oh, watercolor is not something I've ever done. I would love to do watercolor. So I signed up last summer for a a spring watercolor class. Hmm. But of course, then the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. And so they, uh, because of everything at the time I was starting it, um, it was like really new, like it was fresh, like the pandemic stuff. And so everything was just shutting down in person. And so they didn't have time to like move everything online. And so they just refunded everyone, but I had bought all these supplies. So I was like, well, man, I just need to like rock it. So I just put a call out on Microsoft teams to work. And I was like, Hey, if you want me to paint your pet and maybe mess them up really badly, (laughs) Um, send me a photo and I'm going to just try to teach myself watercolors by painting all your pets. And they did. People sent pictures of their pets and I started learning how to watercolor my own pets and other people's. And then I sent out holiday cards of watercolored things I painted. And um, I've really, I love watercolor. (laughs) It's so fun. I've heard that is the (laughs) hardest, the most difficult medium to master, mostly because Of of the of the white space, like you need Mm. really need to understand and have a really good grasp on negative space when you do watercolors. I don't know. That's what I heard. I can't draw. You know what's really funny? I I think the hardest for me was oil. I would say acrylic is probably my easiest, but I Mm. feel like oil was always hard for me because it just felt so bloppy i don't even know the word i don't know i just made that word up but it just felt really bloppy and um it takes so long to dry and then i would inevitably touch it and everything would get messed up underneath the dried layer on the top and the weird thing was when i was in school um so i left high school early to do like dual enrollment for high school and college and i was taking an art class when i did that in college And I remember struggling really hard with some like painting some like still life things with oil and acrylic. Yeah. And I just remember the teacher said the most simplistic thing to me and I was like, Oh, and it was like my whole brain exploded. And I was like, Oh, I get it now or something. And I don't totally, I'm still struggle with all of this, but like it was the most single helpful thing. And she was just, all she said was just draw it. Like you see it. Mm. And I was like, what? (laughs) Oh my God brilliant and so then I started instead of like really worrying about like 
the gestalt image of something, I focused more specifically on like, well, what do I actually see? Yeah. And suddenly I could see the colors that they would constantly be saying about. Cause I was like, Oh, like someone sees gray in this or purple. And I'm like, I don't see that. I just see like the gestalt image, but that was so helpful to me. Mm. And I've taken that with me everywhere. Yeah. That is so interesting. Get out of my own head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so I awesome. love a good watercolor, but that's, that's good to hear that maybe I'm, thriving on watercolor over here that's awesome um i also understand um a inside source has led me to um understand that you've got a peloton bike oh yeah how's that going (laughs) i did i love it yeah (laughs) i love it i know this is not the popular opinion for the show (laughs) i um have found it to be incredibly helpful for anxiety Mm. um for several reasons um one uh so speaking of shame i have lots of shame around like body image and all sorts of things and i hate going to gyms i hate um exercise classes i hate all of that stuff being on a peloton can take all of that away from me because i love riding a bike but i also um, we'll get deep anxiety sometimes about the thought of going out on my bike in places where there's traffic. Yeah. So I love the bike path, but at the same time, there's a lot of people on the bike. <laughs> so, um, the Peloton has provided me like an opportunity to be in the safety of my own home while still being guided by someone who knows more than I do. Um, but to also feel like I'm getting some amount of endorphins for when my anxiety is massively high, which in the last year has been uh, out of control sometimes. So um, I love it for that reason. I don't have to go anywhere for it. If it's not a day I actually can get on my physical bike, I can do that. <laughs> um, uh, some days for- it keeps me from having to take my meds. So I don't know. I love it. Congratulations. That's awesome. <laughs> And for the re- for the record, I was I was never against Pelotons. It was stomping Jen. No, I'm not a spinner. I don't spin. Okay. And I don't run. I do, I however, very much enjoy group exercise classes. Oh, so listen. To, so listen to this, um, Kelsey Hall. Listen to this. Um, yes. Stomping Jen yeah. does these online classes from this woman we know in Belchertown named yeah. Lisa Stahl mm. and you don't have to have your camera on no, and it's like group you can't she mm. does a Facebook live it's, so it's one way yeah. instruction yeah. and Stomping it, Jen is up there it's super affordable and you could take it for up to six days after it's live recorded but like so yeah, yeah go ahead we'll send you the link and this this um my co-host here gets gets me out of bed at seven. She kicks me out of the bedroom and she does these exercises at seven thirty in the morning. Oh but you can do them at any time. Um, yeah, yeah. And you love it, Stomping no, Jen. I mean, pre-pandemic, I very much in, uh, so I. You love the classes for me, and uh, this is only yeah. my experience with exercise. Is I need somebody to tell me to do it, right? So. Yeah. I need that accountability. Like even with like, you know, I have an accountability partner that like I go for walks with, but like if she and I, Oh, I thought you were talking about me. I'm not your accountability partner. No, but like, (laughs) you know, she and I go for walks, but if she can't, if, if our schedules don't mesh up, like sometimes in the morning, if she, if she yells at me, like you should go for a walk, like I'll get it in my head. Like, okay, Mm. I will go for a walk. But if she doesn't yell at me and she'll be like, oh, I walked. I'm like, oh, you didn't tell me to walk. (laughs) 
So that sounds like a codependent accountability partner. Well, it's been it's been very uh, helpful for these last couple of months. Yeah. But before this, I really enjoyed the group exercise yeah. classes, as I mentioned. But I understand yeah. that a lot of people don't like them for that very same reason. Like you know, but yeah. it's something very freeing about like the uh, the accessibility of having a group instructor where they can't see you and you're not with a bunch of people and then you can, you know, you can let go a little bit, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You my job. Like, no, I'll, totally. I mean, like... Yeah, I'll burp or yeah, whatever. Have, and I'm just like, nobody's yeah. here. Nobody cares, you know? <laughs> exactly. And, like, how, like, loud I can sing along to the songs that they choose uh-huh. for the playlist. But, like... And also for anyone else who has a Peloton or whatever, like, or if they just, like, subscribe to the exercise classes and things, like... I love being like, yeah, I'll meet you on the bike at this time. Yeah. And like, we'll take this class or, um, but you know, like you can pick and choose or you can just not talk to anybody and like just ignore everyone, which is great. It's just like, yeah, it's it's been really helpful. I mean, it does when, (laughs) when I listen to people like you speak about it, like I do like enjoy riding a bike on the bike path. Yeah, it's so nice. Yeah, just going out <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah. All right. So okay. Sorry. Right. We're so, going down um, a rabbit artist, hole. increased artistic <laughs> expression. Um, the Peloton. Right. So I'm, I'm, there's a trend here with healthier living. Yeah. Um, and you revealed mm. to me also that it's been like around a year or so since you pretty much stopped drinking. Right. A sobriety yeah. kind of anniversary. Yeah, and it's like sweet. Yeah. And it's really fascinating because it's like not necessarily something that I did for any particular reason. My partner doesn't also, he doesn't drink either. Um, And, you know, like it going into a pandemic year, I was reading this thing where it was like, well, you're either going to come out drunk or you're going to come out really good bread maker. And I was like, I totally want to be on the bread side. Yeah, Um, Team bread. And I just, (laughs) yeah, team bread all the way. But we had been not drinking since like last fall and I think going into this pandemic it was really fascinating at first I was like what is going to come of this what is going to come of this and because of where I work I found out pretty deeply about the pandemic starting in like the end of December early January and then it could become a really big thing um and so I was like already starting to kind of crack down on certain things they had like procured some certain things for myself because I was like oh because I was still traveling for work at that time like with a lot of uncertainty and I spent a lot of time thinking about like what if we were to be locked down what if and I was like I don't want to drink I I don't want to focus on any of those things and I also what an opportunity to cut some people out of my life that are just toxic yeah (laughs) and that's what I did couldn't see anybody this was a perfect time for people with really bad anxiety to say see you later to some people that didn't serve them that they didn't feel like they could serve so I did that too yeah congratulations (laughs) that's awesome um thank you I'm sitting (laughs) I'm sitting at 327 days and yeah thanks and I'll give myself one of these oh yeah um, Yay! <laughs> and my my journey started accidentally somewhat too i got sick like i got a yeah. co- who Ooh. knows maybe i had covid early on but i got like Ooh. in february no it was like january february i got oh, really God. really sick and, january. and i was just like i cannot drink and take medicine and i was drinking like a really unhealthy amount and I just was like, I'm, yeah. and I, I had been like questioning myself and um, I did a whole not like half hour podcast on this. People can go back and listen mm. to it. But um, 
I was just like, I've got to make changes in my life. And it's been like a really good positive thing for me. It's so weird. Yeah. Because when I think about, like, I don't talk about it because I stopped drinking also. But yeah. like, you you talk about it all the time. Well, because, yeah, I'll, <laughs> I could go on about why, but go ahead. But like, it's interesting because like, like you just said, we were drinking an unhealthy amount. We were doing it together. It wasn't like you were doing it and, yeah. and I wasn't doing it. We were both doing it together. And then we, <laughs> we had a discussion about it, actually, I think on the air. And then I read this, I got this book that my therapist had recommended like a year prior. And for me, mm. it literally just flipped a switch in my brain. So like I have no desire to drink any longer. What's, what's really interesting, right, is I think we were both going down these parallel tracks of questioning our own drinking behaviors and not talking to each other mm. about it. Like, mm -hmm. and then I think... I don't know what happened. I don't know if you stopped first, but it was like, it was like no, right you around. you stopped first. I did. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I was just like, I said to you, I'm like, I don't want to do this. I'm getting concerned about like thinking about drinking all the time because mm. I was like, I would be like, be thinking like in the morning being, starting to think about what am I going to drink later tonight? I was yeah, like, do and, we have alcohol? And once that happened, once that happened, I was like, mm. there's a fucking problem here yeah. and I need to stop. Like, and then I, yeah. and then, so I'd been thinking that way for a couple of weeks. And then when I got sick, I was like, okay, I'm using this. This is going to be my, <laughs> this is going to be my springboard. And, you know, and like Stomping Jen said, it has flipped multiple switches in my brain. Like, yeah, it I, had more of an impact, I think, on you for well, your... Um, I struggle with generalized anxiety disorder right. to begin with, and I didn't realize... <laughs> yeah, I did not realize <sighs> how badly alcohol was yep. exacerbating that. And it's, Big time. It, it's like somebody... I know... Um, I don't want to talk about that as something that needs to be fixed if it works for somebody, but for me, it was having really negative consequences in my life and so mm -hmm. having that diminish by well, it took you off the cycle yeah the like manic not manic no i was manic well you were at times yeah but like I was. you know anyways yeah anyways and so yeah so i'm really happy so it's had more of an impact and a benefit for you but then i think the other thing so i don't know if this happened to you and your partner kelsey but like for us, there was yeah. a huge mental transition, not around the alcohol itself, but around the cultural society and its view on oh, yeah. alcohol and adjusting <laughs> all of our mindset around that. And I, you know, I feel like it's less of a struggle maybe because we don't see people so much anymore socially. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit easier to compartmentalize that. But, you know, a lot of you know, when the pandemic hit and all the people talking about drinking to cope with, you know, the yep. pandemic and just, yeah. you know, Absolutely. it was so prevalent and so in your face and like, you're so, it's like, it's like you take the blue pill or the red pill or the whatever pill that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. In the matrix. Did you do the sourdough or did you drink? Yeah. Right. <laughs> like yeah. it's basically what you're down to. Yeah. But you're so right. Like I, I totally agree. There are certain things. I also have a pretty significant anxiety disorder. And I know that things that really impact it are alcohol and caffeine um, and lots of other things. But I also know the things that help it. And for me, it's like riding the Peloton, doing yeah. something mindless, like 
literally just like describing the environment around myself at any given moment to just ground myself so I don't have a panic attack. But I think to what you were saying before too, like your opportunity to kind of just go head first in this when you, you know, got sick. Like the pandemic in a lot of ways was that springboard, I think for me and for many other people in yeah. some ways, but like to just be like, yep, we're gung ho, not drinking. And then realizing that drinking in a lot of ways was a crutch to allow toxic people to me- maintain their presence in my life. Yeah. And realizing that now I can't see those toxic people because it's like legit illegal. And that was great because it just like got them away from me. And then it also was like, oh, and I'm not drinking because that's what I used to do with them to cope that mm-hmm. I was with them. And right. so it just like was a cycle that I was like starting to unpack and just being like, wow. Um, it's great yeah. to just remove certain things that are just not serving you and to feel like unapologetically unapolog- happy. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I'm yeah. so happy for you. Okay. Last question. You before too. We, before yeah, we, yeah, thank yeah. you. Um, last question before we wrap up and you can, okay. you can interpret this no, any, no. any, what Nothing. stomping Jen knows what I'm about to ask you. He's All right. Switched uh, the order okay. All right. Um, what have you seen that you cannot explain? <laughs> what have I seen yeah. that I cannot explain? If it's nothing, that's fine. If you can explain everything, that's totally okay. <laughs> it's not the nature of people, right? To explain everything away and to like yes. it making sense. Um, how would I just like, what have I seen? Can it be like in a dream? Yeah, it could be anything. That's the beauty of this question. Ah, uh, so... Stomping Jen will judge you for your answer. Stomping Jen will judge you for your (laughs) answer. I will not, just by the way. Okay. Well, I've been thinking about this dream that I recently had that was like really haunting. Um, Hmm, Go on. And like, it was just so strange. It was like a family member's sister, like that I don't know. Like we, we bought a house this year early like in the midst of the pandemic and we in my dream i was like in this house but it wasn't this house as dreams always go right and um i was sleeping and my partner had woken up and um he like ran upstairs after going downstairs he was like you have to come down here you have to come down here and um I like walked downstairs into what I was going to think was going to be our house. And it was like completely rearranged with this family member's sister, all of her things. And just like, it was just like the weirdest, I don't, I don't even, I guess I can't explain it because it was the weirdest thing that I've mm. seen. And just, I think the secondary part of this where um, there's like a tow truck that he had called because they were saying that she was also dead. So she had like come into our home and like rearranged all of the furniture and added her own furniture and then like stood it up in such a way. And that when I walked downstairs, I was just like, what? It was like both haunting and just like unbelievable. Hmm. So I literally can't explain it. And then the dream continued, but it was just a nightmare. So that's been on my mind, like an insane, abnormal amount for a dream that happened like several days ago or three three or four days ago. Mm. And I think I'm going to be thinking about that for a very long time. And I feel like I need to call that family member because it was so haunting. 
And the dream ended with me going to try to find them, like my family that this person's related to, to like tell them this happened. And the dream ends with me like running up and down the stairs of this like very large apartment complex. And on one of the floors hearing my uncle say, we're down here in room 916. And that was it or 619. And that was it. And I was like running towards 619 and I woke up. Room 619. So, What's in room 619? I don't know. I don't know. I got to find it though. Well, thank you yeah, for sharing that with weird. us. Um, yeah. I appreciate it. Anyway. Um, no, that yeah. was great. Thank you. Yeah, explain it. <laughs> uh, I love asking people that You're question. So welcome. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, All, right. It's a, it's a All right. It's almost been two hours. I first need to say uh, before we wrap up, thank you, Kelsey Hall, for coming on and talking to us about accessibility, mm-hmm. disability, ableism, ableism anti-ableism. <laughs> That's an important thing to emphasize. Anti-ableism. Mm-hmm. Okay. All of you okay. listening out here can do something about this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Get on it. So thank you, Kel- thank, thank you, Kelsey Hall. Thank St- you. Stomping Jen. Thank yes. you. Thank you. Me? You're proving, <laughs> you're proving, continuing to prove that you're the right co-host for me. Oh my gosh. Thank you. As always. <laughs> Anything I can cutest. do for you. <laughs> to, our, to our fans, to our fans, yes. I would be remiss if I did not mention you. Um, I'll say it like I do every week. I love you. Thank you for listening. Stomping Jen, what would you like to say? Subscribe, download, share with a friend. Once again, no love from Stomping Jen. That's fine. Why can't you speak for both of us? I only speak for me. Oh, my Jesus. Okay. All right. Well, this is your chance. We love you. That Be was healthy. that sounded very Wear a mask. Ins- sounded Be very vaccinated. <laughs> sounded very insincere. Very insincere. Oh Mine gosh. was sincere. Okay. Don't shame me. Oh. Oh. All right. This is that for me shaming break. you. Mm-hmm. All right. No shaming allowed. Right. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Thanks. All right, people. Um, thank you for listening. Subscribe, download, leave us a review, and we'll see you on the next one. Right. Yep. Okay. Um, right. Kelsey Hall. Do you want to say bye? I want to say, please come sit at our table and do some anti-ableism work with us. And goodbye. And I love you, too. All right. Okay. Thanks, everyone. (laughs) Bye. Bye now. (laughs) Bye. Thank you.